In a small town in Arkansas, there was a young woman who was really struggling. She was a single mom with a baby, a baby that had a lot of health issues, so this little one required her constant attention. A neighbor noticed and volunteered to help. So every few days, the neighbor would come by to keep the child so the mother could go to the grocery store and shop. Well, after several weeks of doing this, the neighbor did more than just share her time. She began to share her faith. And the young lady became interested. And shortly thereafter, she began to attend church with her. Well, that's when all her friends began to warn her, watch out. Do you know what that church teaches? You better be careful. And the young lady said, well, I don't know much about their teaching yet, but I do know this. My neighbor is willing to help me. My neighbor is willing to hold my baby. How many times have you heard it said, a picture is worth a thousand words? And it's true. God knows this. Have you ever noticed all the pictures that he puts in the Bible? All the visuals that he uses? A Passover lamb, the tabernacle, the cross, the empty tomb. Here are these pictures that help us to understand, that enable us to see and touch the truth about God in a way that makes that truth memorable. Well, this morning, I want you to consider three pictures that we see in God's Word. And all three pictures have a common theme. In each picture, here's what you're going to see. Here is someone who really cares. The first picture comes from the book of Jeremiah. In chapter 38, we see this prophet of God is now an old man, and he's in trouble. Four princes from the royal palace have taken offense to his preaching. They feel like Jeremiah is trying to undermine their work. And so they want to get him and put him out of the way. They want to kill him and kill him in a way where he really suffers as he dies. So they get Jeremiah and they drop him in a huge cistern. It's this deep hole in the ground that is shaped like a pear with a narrow opening at the top that you can cover easily and then this huge cave-like opening down at the bottom. Normally a place like this, a cistern like this was designed, it was dug to hold and store a bunch of water when the rain came. But this particular cave, the water is gone, and there's nothing left but a bunch of mud. And that's where they drop Jeremiah. They drop him into this deep, dark cave, and they leave him there so that he can just slowly die from the hunger and exposure. It's a terrible and frightening way to go. But God steps in. God's going to rescue Jeremiah. And he's going to do it through a man from Ethiopia, a fellow by the name of Eben Melech. Now, Eben Melech works in the palace too. He's a servant to the king. So he has this really nice job. But when Eben Melech learns what these royal officials have done to Jeremiah, he's shocked. He's alarmed. This isn't right. Jeremiah hasn't done anything wrong. I can't sit still. I've got to do something about this. I need to help. So at great risk to himself and at great risk to this nice job that he has, Eben Melech approaches the king and he pleads for the life of God's prophet. Well, surprisingly, the king, who is not a good man, surprisingly, this king listens, and he responds. And the king gives Eben Melech the, the permission to pull Jeremiah out of the hole. Now, this is where the story gets really interesting. How is Eben Melech going to get Jeremiah out of this cistern? You see, you've got to keep in mind, Jeremiah is an old man. He bruises e easily. His bones are brittle. I mean, you tug too hard on that rope and you could pull a muscle or tear the skin. So before Eben Melech goes running to the hole, he does two things. First of all, he gathers 30 men so he's got plenty of muscle to lift Jeremiah out of the cistern. 
And then secondly, he goes to the royal warehouse where he gathers up a bunch of old rags and worn out clothes so that when he gets to the hole, he does more than just lower a rope. He also drops all the rags down there and he tells Jeremiah, take those rags and place them under your arms. Pad yourself so the rope won't cut and it won't burn when we pull you out. Now that's the part of the story that always touches me. Eben Melech is not only concerned about getting Jeremiah out of that hole, he wants to make sure that he gets Jeremiah out of the hole the right way, the very best way, a way in which there will be no further injury. Isn't it true that sometimes we're so eager to help we rush in too quickly and we end up doing more harm than good because we were not wise or thoughtful or gentle in the way we provided that help? You know, here's a child on a swing and they just need a push. So you volunteer to help. But you forget how strong you are and you forget how little that child is. And so when you push, you push too hard and you push too high and the little kid is frightened. And this opportunity that you had to build a trust with that child, it's lost because you weren't careful in the way you helped. Jeremiah chapter 38 is a reminder that we're all in the life-saving business. All around us, we're gonna find people who are stuck in a hole. Uh, maybe it's a, a friend and she fumbled a project at work and she got chewed out by the boss and now she knows her job is on the line. She's worried and anxious. Or maybe it's your teenage daughter and one day she was driving a little too fast, hit a slick spot, lost control and wrecked the car and she feels awful about this. Both ladies know they fumbled the ball and they, they're really sorry about it. So at this point in their lives, what they need from you and what they need from me is not a pointed finger, I told you so. What they need are some open, arms. In other words, we've got to do more than just lower the rope. We need to pad the ropes. We've got to do more than just offer to help. We've got to be careful to help them in such a way that we make things better for them. Now, that brings us to the second picture. We find it in the book of Galatians chapter 6. And you will notice that this second picture is very similar to the picture we just saw in the book of Jeremiah. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 says this, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the help of God's Holy Spirit, you should reach out to that person. You should try and help them. Try to restore them, but as you try to restore, make sure that you restore that person gently. Somebody caught in a sin. There's the picture. Someone caught in a sin. Now, what exactly are we seeing as we look at this picture? Somebody that we caught with her hand in the cookie jar. Hey, I caught you doing something wrong. Now I'm going to let you have it. That's not what we're talking about. Because of the way this verse is written, the picture is more like an animal walking into a trap. They didn't see what was coming and they got caught off guard. Now suddenly the world is turned upside down. Now suddenly here's this animal dangling in the air, stuck in this huge net. And no matter how much the animal struggles, it can't get free. In other words, the sin that we're talking about here, and we are talking about a sin, but this sin is not something that came about because you were being stubborn or being rebellious. This is a sin that came about because you were being foolish. You weren't paying attention. Ha, oh, I never should have been there in the first place, but you were there. And because you were there, now you find yourself in the center of a problem where the consequences continue to spiral out of control. The mess just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Merle Jordan described it like this. He said one day he was standing on a pier and he watched this father and his son, a father and his little boy get in a boat. Father took the wheel, turned the ignition and the engine fired up. 
But it was obviously obvious that the little boy's job was to lift the anchor. Well, the anchor was too heavy, and he couldn't get it out of the water. And as long as the anchor remained in the water, no much, even though the engine was going, the boat couldn't move forward. And Merle Jordan said, as he was watching this, that, made, that scene made him think about this verse. How many people are unable to live a healthy life, unable to move forward in a productive way because they're still anchored to some moment or some event in their past? You know, here are some boys who, when they were little, were molested by men. Now, years later, they become very aggressive in their behavior because they want to avoid feeling weak or avoid feeling afraid. Something terrible was done to them in their past, and now years later, to make sure that that never happens again, they overcompensate, and they become mean and aggressive in the way they treat others. Or here's somebody who grew up in a home with an alcoholic, or grew up in a home where there was a lot of violence. And now years later, we watch this person, we watch them as they choose mates or choose business partners who have those very same traits. And why? It's what they're familiar with. It's what they can relate to. And many times, they don't even see what they're doing, how they're repeating a history, repeating a, a bad history because they're still stuck, still anchored to something in their past. God doesn't want that. That's not God's will for us. God doesn't want us to be caught in a sin. God doesn't want us to be trapped in an addiction. God doesn't want us to be stuck in a pattern where we keep repeating this cycle from a past, a, a cycle that keeps tripping us up and keeps us from moving forward. No, God wants our lives to be changed, to be transformed. But sometimes we can't pull that anchor up by ourselves. We need the help of others. So that's why the Bible says here, we who live by the help of God's Holy Spirit, we know the difference that God has made for us. We need to reach out to that person. We need to try to restore. And the word that the Bible uses here for restore literally means to reset a dislocated bone. Well, trying to reset a broken bone, that can be a painful process. So the Bible says as you go about this work of restoration, as you're trying to help this person get back on their feet again, as you're trying to make things right again for them, make sure you do this gently. Where does that gentleness come from? It comes from Jesus and the gentle way He restored us. That brings us to the third picture. We find it back in the book of Isaiah, chapter 42. Here in the Old Testament, we have a picture of Jesus, this beautiful picture of the coming Messiah and how He's going to rescue us from our sin. Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 3. It says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Now what in the world is Isaiah talking about? Well, this reed that he's talking about is a reed that was often used as a measuring stick. So in order for the stick to work, it has to remain straight. And yet these reeds are very fragile. So if the reed's ever cracked, it's ever bruised and bent, it's, it's become damaged goods. It's lost its value. It's not going to work anymore. And the only reasonable thing to do in a situation like that, snap it in two and throw it away. And this is no big deal because you find these reeds growing all over the land of Israel. And they're not hard to replace. They're cheap and plentiful. So if one's not working, throw it away and get another one. Same way with the wick and the oil lamp. If the flame is gone, now the wick is just putting off the smoke, burning our eyes, filling the room with all this unwanted pollution. The only reasonable thing to do is snuff it out. Throw it away and replace it with a different wick. And again, those wicks are easy to come by. So what we have here are two pictures of the same thing. Two pictures of something that is beyond hope. The bruised reed 
and the smoldering wick. Because of the damage they suffered, they can't do their job anymore. So there's no need to hang on to them, just throw them away. Now, when Isaiah first wrote this, he was originally talking about the nation of Israel. After 800 years of constant rebellion and constant disobedience, the nation of Israel had become like a bruised reed. They weren't straight anymore. They had now become very crooked and corrupt in their behavior. And the nation of Israel was like a smoldering wick. Instead of giving light to all the world around it, now they were just putting off smoke, polluting the atmosphere with their dirty, filthy lifestyles. So as an act of discipline, God kicks them out of the promised land. He sends them off to battle. And to the rest of the world, it looks like God has just thrown them away, like the nation of Israel has become useless in the eyes of the Lord. They have lost their value to Him. But that's not true. You see, it was always a part of God's plan that 70 years later, God would come back to Babylon. God would come back to that trash pile and pick up that bruised reed, pick up that smoldering wick so He could use them again. So the lesson here is this. The very people that everybody else wants to write off because they seem to be beyond hope, it looks like they can't be helped anymore. Those are the very people to whom God wants to say, I have a future and a hope for you. And God doesn't just promise that to the nation of Israel. He makes that promise to us. See, in the New Testament, the book of Matthew, he takes this very scripture and quotes it again. And he quotes it in reference to Jesus and how he saves us. So how does this work? Well, do you remember the invitation that Jesus made? One day, Jesus is standing before the crowds and he said, come to me. But how did he finish that statement? Come to me, all you who are what? Come to me, all you who are highly functional and gainfully employed and multi-talented. Come to me, all you who are college educated and biblically literate and good-looking. Come to me and I will leverage your strengths and together we will build a highly successful church. That's not what Jesus said. That's not the invitation that he made. You read the Gospels. You can't get two pages into Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John before you see Jesus slowing down. Slowing down so he can help and care for and love and assist and heal the very weakest folks in all of Israel. Scooping up the little children allowing the ex-prostitutes to wash his feet, touching lepers, preaching to the peasants, helping people who are wrestling with demons, reaching out to the divorcees who've already been married five times and now they're just living with this person. Here's the very heart of the gospel that we proclaim. We're all weak, helplessly weak. No matter how many attempts we've made to keep it together, yet time after time we keep falling short. And yet Jesus loves us anyway. You see, there's no other religion in the world that is like this. Every other religion in the world makes its appeal to the strong, the capable, the disciplined, the driven. Come to me, all you who can meditate for hours on end. Come to me, all you who are able to hold to and remain true to a strict moral code. Come to me, all you who never smoked crack or never racked up a huge credit card debt. Come to me, all you who are witty and intelligent and in great physical shape. Come to me, all you who are successful and strong. That's not what Jesus said. That's not the invitation that he made. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, meaning the weak, the pathetic, the incompetent, meaning the addicted, the scared, and the messed up. Come to me, all you who have been bullied and beaten down because you could never beat the system. Come to me, all you who couldn't keep it together, who could never get it right. Come to me, Jesus says, and I will give you rest, meaning and I will be strong for you. And you know what makes that invitation so appealing to us? 
Because Jesus opens up his heart and says, know this, that when you come to me, here's what you're going to discover, that I am gentle. Meaning he is the most calm, the most tender, the most understanding person in all the universe. You see, it's not just what he does for us. It's the way in which he does it. Gently, carefully taking that bruised reed and making it tall and straight again. Quietly cupping his hands around the smoldering wick and as he blows softly, the flame is restored. That's the hope that he brings. My Cope has two children, a boy named Matthew and a little girl named Megan. Megan has some mental handicaps, so she can never be left alone. She has to always be watched. One afternoon, Mike and his kids were out in the backyard, and for a moment, he began to do something with Matthew. Just for a brief moment, he turned his back on Megan. A minute later, he turned back around, and there was this little girl eating dog food with her puppy. Both of them eating out of the same bowl, and both of them, the little girl and the little dog, just having a grand time. So Mike went over to clean her up. I mean, here's this little girl, her clothes covered with mud, her face covered with dog food. So as Mike bent over to pick her up, little Megan looks at her daddy, puckers her lips and says, kiss me, daddy, kiss me. <laughs> now who in the world would kiss a face like that? I'll tell you who, her daddy. And Mike did, because there's nobody in all the world who loves little Megan more than her daddy does. That's what the Bible is telling us. That's what the Bible is saying here about Jesus. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Though we're covered with sin and deeply in trouble because of that sin, he doesn't run away from us. Instead, he runs to us because there's no one in all the world who loves us more than Jesus does. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the amazing way he loves us. God, today, let us experience that love again. And we ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.